Let us pray. Living God, you have created all that is. Send forth your spirit to renew and restore us, that we may proclaim your good news in ways and words that all will understand and believe. Amen. In today's texts, we have a familiar tension between being gathered and being scattered. We feel this all the time as we come together. We are one and yet rather different sounding and different looking. And it seems it's a common human problem to have trouble imagining a great gathering in which still maintains a sense of freedom for each one and the uniqueness of each one. During this challenging time in church life, one of the self-care practices that I've been really grateful for is meeting with our own Francis and our mutual friend Randy Newswanger for something called interplay. Anyone heard of interplay? (laughs) Yeah, I didn't really think so. (laughs) From their website, a simple definition of interplay is um, it's a, well, I'll just say, it's a combination of movement and stillness. It's an active practice. And what they say is, um, leaders of this lead participants to movement and stories, silence and song, ease and amusement. It helps adults to be playful and connect with what they would call the wisdom of our bodies. Now you really think I'm off the deep end, I'm sure. <laughs> But I want to tell you a brief story of this experience this week. We've been meeting, and you're welcome to join us. We've been meeting in, on Thursday, more, Thursday at 1.30, right in that back corner there. So the folks who meet there for Sunday school, we've been blessing your space. You're welcome. But what happened toward the end of our time together, um, and I'm always aware of us moving separately and yet together, aware of each other in the space, and also aware of our own bodies and where and how we want to move. At the end of our time this past week, we stood facing each other in like a three-person circle. And Randy invited us to put our hands in the center, kind of intersecting the same space, but not always, not usually not actually touching. And there, there's, he always puts on a, a piece of music, and we move however we move. And it was, um, this again, this experience of three separate and distinct bodies, three people with very different experiences, moving together without coercion, and... It just happened that we came to this point where our hands were together forming 
a circle, open hands. And we had been talking together about some of the pain and difficulty of this time as church. And we simply paused in that position, the three of us, with these six hands, holding this space, just holding it, no words. But maybe it's just really hard most of the time in our day-to-day lives to, to let ourselves be that open and free. The people on the plain of Shinar said to each other, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now it seems normal enough that people would want to build a city and even a tower, but a name for whom? Like, a name for themselves among whom? This is, if this is supposed to represent a united humanity, and this is their best efforts, who is there left for them to impress? In this scenario, who but God could be their rival? The people seem to feel a need to exert their power and at the very least keep themselves from being scattered. Now we tend to see this as a classic test, uh, classic text that illustrates hubris, just human pride. Human beings competing with God and God putting them in their place. And that's certainly there, but maybe it's not quite as simple as that. If we zoom out a little bit in Genesis, we see more of a complex, bigger picture. In Genesis 10, which is directly before this story, we have the cataloging of the descendants of Noah's children. And at least part of the point of this is the repopulating of the earth after the flood. So if we go back to chapter 9 you can hear God reiterating this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the whole earth. If you're looking, you'll notice that, interestingly, in Genesis 9, this repetition of the command does not include subdue it. Interesting. But be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, in chapter 9, this command is accompanied by a covenant, you might remember, God makes a covenant with all of the creatures on the entire earth and with Noah and Noah's family. And gives the bow, which we call a rainbow, right, as the sign of this covenant. So God here is pledging loyalty to everything that lives and promising never again to destroy all life. And then at the end of Chapter 10, when it describes all of Noah's descendants, it says, From the families of Noah's descendants, the nations spread abroad to the earth, spread abroad on earth after the flood. So from these families, the nations spread out and filled the earth. So why is it that in the very next 
verse or so, several verses in chapter 11, the people on this plain of Shinar are afraid of being scattered over the earth. They seem to think they have a lot to lose in being dispersed from one another. As I talked about this story with a colleague this week, he said that for him, the definition of sin is acting like we are God. And yet, it seems this is one of the most primal human responses to the helplessness we feel as we make our way through the world. And so, in a sense, we do compete with God. We do our best to protect ourselves from the inevitable losses and the sense of dependency that is just built in to being human. This same friend of mine says that he sees God's judgment as simply honesty about what's really going on with us. God exposes our destructive patterns and opens up an opportunity for us to become more honest with ourselves and choose a path of life of of willing relationship with the one on whom we depend, whether we're willing to admit it or not. So this idea of God calling things as they are, which in the long run is a mercy for us. But it's really, really risky to trust God to take care of things. And so, like the people on the plain of Shinar, to feel more secure, to reassure ourselves We build our towers, from literal skyscrapers to piles of accomplishments. We consolidate our strength, our money, and other resources. And when we're immersed in this way of seeing the world, we think that standardization and predictability actually make us safer. And this gives us a false sense of evading our mortality and even evading our interdependence. Like the builders of Babel, instead of our bold projects bringing a deeper awareness that we exist only in relationship to many other things and people, this tower building fosters a deceptive sense of independent power and autonomy. Maybe the builders of the tower in Genesis 11 rightly reasoned that if they were scattered, it would be harder to protect themselves. And so they, didn't, they unite for self-defense, and yet they unite without mention of the God who created them and covenanted with them in love. It's a loyalty to their own sense of security rather than a loyalty to the creator of all the earth. And though we might find security and ease in, for example, being American among other Americans, it's comfortable, and we're maybe finding security or a sense of comfort in living what might be called a common project of democratic principles, and using the same apps on our phones or the same search engines, yet we're separated from each other and from true community 
and shielded from an awareness of our dependence on God. But left to our own devices, this is what human beings do. We form unity based on fear and coercion and conformity. But just as there are ways of uniting that are destructive to God's way of mutual love and interdependence, there is a kind of scattering that God desires. God intended, as we saw earlier in Genesis there, God intended humanity to fill and care for the earth in loyalty to God. A humanity united in its covenant relationship with God. And this will have all different kinds of expressions. It doesn't require conformity. You'll remember in Revelation the great diversity of those who are surrounding the throne and yet together turned toward God in worship. God is not against the building of cities and structures. Of course, we've been speaking the last few weeks of the new heavens and the new earth coming together in a holy city. What God is against is the dishonesty of our belief in our own autonomy. The only way we will be both united and also free is in our common loyalty to the creator of all things. Not a trust in our ability to construct a safe and prosperous world. Not an allegiance to democracy or capitalism or socialism or whatever your preferred way of organizing human society and human commerce. But we may be both united and free through trust in the one God, the source of life and wisdom, who created difference and delights in it, and who is always working for mutual well-being. The word at the end of Genesis 10, right before the Babel story, when the people spread out, it's this word for to divide, just like a river divides, bringing water far and wide as it separates, coming from the same source, spreading out water for the benefit of all. And on that day of Pentecost, the Spirit came to people who had experienced living as united and divided. The festival of Pentecost, as you might remember, celebrated 50 days after the Passover, was originally a harvest festival, but eventually Pentecost came to commemorate the giving of the law at Sinai. Another time when, as you'll remember, there was fire and wind from God. So Jews from everywhere had gathered. They came with a common understanding of God as the giver of life and the loyal keeper of covenant love. Many of them, we might suppose, were united in their allegiance to their creator above the powers of their day. As we hope to be, willing to look and act differently from the people they rub shoulders with every day in their commitment to keep God's teachings, 
And as observant Jews, Jesus' friends had also gathered. This small community of Jesus' followers who were sticking together after he had left, ascended to the Father, and again promised to send the Advocate, the Spirit. Yet, even though all these people are Jews, they see themselves as separate from one another. I mean, certainly they were usually separated by many miles, many different cultural expressions, and obviously by a variety of language barriers. They knew they had all come to Jerusalem to worship the God who had long ago brought them out into freedom and made them into a people. And yet there were so many reasons to identify with the things that made them separate from one another and scattered. That this sudden moment of understanding when they hear this sound and they hear their own languages was a shock to them. If we look starting at verse 6, they were bewildered. They were bewildered because they understood what these people were saying to them. At the sound at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. They're amazed and perplexed. This mix of, wow, and what the... And they ask each other, what does this mean? The spirit, empowered, speaking, gathers them and confuses them at the same time. So they're drawn into this, but they're also disoriented and bewildered by the spirit's movement. Suddenly there's no barrier to their understanding. And if Galileans, of all people, are delivering these words about God's deeds of power, really, the sky's the limit. This is fulfilling the desire of God from all the way back to Noah and to the creation itself. They become united in their amazement at the works of God. They were gathered by the powerful arrival of the Spirit and they were listening in the words that they most identified with, united and separate and together. They heard the sound of the disciples' voices, and they were one in turning toward this bewildering and amazing speech about God's deeds of power and deliverance and reconciliation in Christ Jesus from the lips of the least educated and least likely public speakers. So it's not exactly a reversal of Babel, as people tend to say. When the Spirit comes at the day of Pentecost, it's not to give them a common language, but a common understanding, a common comprehension in their own heart languages. They didn't need one shared language. They needed to hear God's saving deeds in words that they most identified with. And in sending the Spirit on all flesh with no regard to status or age or gender, God is giving ordinary people the power to proclaim God's saving and reconciling action in Christ. 
I don't know if we ever think about this, but this, the vision that we have in Revelation of every language being people of every language and every culture praising God. I don't know if we expect that we're going to all understand one another when that happens. And I wonder if it even matters if we know what's being said. We experience this when we gather together with people of various languages now. It doesn't matter. We all know that the words being spoken and sung are being offered in praise to God, that we're all praising God. And this is the freedom of life in the spirit, a shared connection, the breaking down of barriers, even as each one retains the uniqueness that God has given. It's a joyful bewilderment of being united by the Spirit of God when we least expected it. And the new believers that day were then gathered into community, into a shared life, with all of the challenge and the difficulty and the mutual encouragement that that includes, only to be scattered again for the good work of proclaiming God's saving deeds and God's transforming love. And so they experience the freedom of being fully themselves while being swept up into this new thing that God was doing among all flesh as the Spirit of Christ began to flow out to all people. The Spirit's coming is so often bewildering even as it brings freedom and gratitude and motivates us to turn from life-draining and fear-based patterns, self-protection, toward community, and then out toward sharing the presence of Christ with anyone who'll have us. I suppose we shouldn't expect it to make sense. The message of God's healing and uniting action tends to come in pretty shocking packages, even from Galileans. And it's risky to receive it. But if we do, if we're open, it brings a bewildering joy. I want to bless you with a blessing from Jan Richardson. As we're gathered together on this day of the Spirit, this is the blessing we cannot speak by ourselves. This is the blessing we cannot summon by our own devices, cannot shape to our own purposes, cannot bend to our own will. This is the blessing that comes when we leave behind our aloneness, when we gather together, when we turn toward one another. This is the blessing that blazes among us when we speak the words strange to our ears, when we finally listen into the chaos, when we breathe together at last. One way of breathing together is singing together. So I invite you 
um, to turn and sing the story. Actually, you know what? I might be wrong. Sing the journey, number 32. And please stand with me. This song became more poignant to me when I heard it in a film that many of you have probably seen about the freedom struggle in South Africa. And people were standing at a public gathering, probably an illegal at that time public gathering, um, singing this song. And so let us sing it with all that longing for the freedom that comes in the spirit for all people everywhere. If you be 